Welcome everybody to the Arian Codes podcast. This is a new series that I've just started and in this podcast I'm going to interview interesting people from the software industry and from academia. Today we're going to talk to Sibrun Stufel who is a software developer at the uh, Blender Institute and uh, you may also know Sibrun as Dr. Sibrun from our Discord server. Actually, Sibon is really a doctor. He did a PhD in computer science, and actually I was his uh, PhD supervisor, so that's how we know each other. And for some reason, we are still on good terms. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, Sibon, for joining the podcast today. Uh, perhaps uh, you'd like to start uh, and tell a little bit about uh, Blender and uh, how you ended up there. Thanks for the introduction, Arjen. Um, so I'm Sibon, and I've been working at Blender as a software developer since 2016. I've been Blender developer since 2015. Um, because during my PhD, uh, we were looking at animating and simulating dense groups of people. And that simulation I ran inside of the Blender game engine. And that game engine didn't really do what I wanted it to do. So I started hacking it around and making it produce the information that I needed. So I started sending in that as a patch, um, and the guy reviewing these patches uh, was uh, Campbell. And I just poked him, Campbell, Campbell, is it in yet? Is it in yet? Have you looked at it, Campbell? Um, and after a patch of three, he got annoyed by me, so he was like, hey, <laughs> here you have your commit access, and uh, now do it yourself. <laughs> so that's how I became a, uh, a, a Blender developer. And Blender is, is based in Amsterdam, right? It is, yes. So it's it's founded by a, a Dutch guy, right? Yep, Tom Rosendahl. Yeah. Uh, wh when was Blender founded? Yeah, well, Blender, the software is older than Blender Foundation or, or Blender Institute. Um, it started in 89 uh, already. As uh, Tom started his company, Neo Geo, which was a 3D animation studio that... Uh, it started in his attic and, and basically it grew quite rapidly and became the, the, the biggest company of its, uh, its type, uh, at least in the Netherlands. Uh, and then uh, Blender started, like Blender the software, he started it in uh, January 94. And then in 98, um, basically Neo Geo closed, had to close their doors and... Um, Ton basically started a new company, not a number, uh, with the intent of developing Blender further. Um, that also became was when Blender changed from in-house 3D application for some commercial company to right. being free to download for everybody. So that's when it started gaining uh, a bit of a community. Um, then in 2002, not a number went bankrupt uh, for, for various reasons. And uh, all the uh, intellectual property of the company was still owned by the financial backers of the company, mm -hmm. which meant that it was no longer accessible for anybody. Uh, so that is when Tom started what was basically the world's first uh, crowdfunding campaign. Right. And they collected a quarter of, uh, with a quarter of a million users... So by then, even before Blender was open source, it already had a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. um, they raised over 100,000 euros in, in seven weeks. Wow, so Within incredible. two months, yeah. 
Um, and that money was spent on basically buying back the uh, intellectual property and um, to make it open source. Wow, that's an incredible story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and now, I mean, Blender at the moment is like one of the most popular uh, 3D graphics platforms that are out there, right? It is, uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's a huge community of people that are contributing uh, uh, from anything. Uh, is is that mainly uh, source, source code actually that they're contributing or also assets? Uh, well, uh, that's what I really noticed when, uh, and we go back to my time uh, doing my PhD, uh, because you also gave the course uh, computer animation, which that's at right. first I yeah. followed as a student, and then later I was also teaching it. Yeah. Um, and one of the assignments for the students was to go into the mocap lab, learn how it works, and use whatever software you want to create some simple animation uh, with mocap. Um, and then students started asking, like, oh, I chose Maya because I've used it before, or 3ds Max because I've used it before, but where do I find any assets? Where do I find models to use? Uh, because everything is paid for. And that's when I realized yeah. that when you are in a community uh, for commercial paid for software, that colors that community uh, and and you, you see that they also want to get paid for the stuff that they make. Whereas if you look at the Blender community, there are sites like BlendSwap, where you can just download models and you can share stuff. And there's a cap on how much you can download. But if you uh, want to lift that cap, you don't necessarily have to pay. You can also just upload what you created. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's always a challenge with open source software because, I mean, there are definitely costs involved. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, yes. so the, the traditional business model of basically having people pay a license fee or buying a, a license of the copy or getting a subscription or things like that doesn't really apply. So you have to think of other ways to, to kind of survive. So yep. what, what is Blender's main model of survival? Uh, well... At, it changed over the years. So the first uh, production uh, was Elephant's Dream back in 2005. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I think that was funded by selling the DVD beforehand. So right. before the production started, you would already pay. So it was kind of a crowdfunding as well, except that it, the word didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. um, but it was kind of paid forward. So when you... Um, when you pay early enough, not only do you get the DVD, but also do you you would get your name in the credits as one of the the uh, financiers of the of the project. Right, and that of course is also really nice for people to have their own name uh, in that film. Um, and then Blender Institute was founded mm -hmm. because Tom thought, well, this is a nice idea, and a bunch of other productions were made, like uh, Big Buck Bunny and Sintel, mm -hmm. um, but. It was very difficult to to get everything financed, and it's also very difficult to like basically keep things keep people paid between productions so that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So it was really like scrounging people who wanted to make and were able to to help with the production to make it, but then afterwards, like their contract couldn't be extended because uh, there was no money left. 
Right. It, it sounds very similar to what also happens a lot in the game industry, where uh, game companies basically hire a team for a particular game, but then basically at the end, everybody's laid off again. And yeah. the disadvantage as a business is that you kind of have to start over again from scratch when you start a new project. And often exactly. the good people already moved on to different places, so they're hard to find. So that's that must be really challenging. Yeah. And so you, so, you mentioned uh, Blender Foundation and Blender Institute. So yep. what can you explain a bit? What, what are those? How do they operate? Blender Foundation is, is literally a foundation. It was um, started, I have to look it up in my notes because I wrote down the, the history <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it was founded in 2002 when um, not a number went bankrupt and Blender had to be made open source. That was when Blender Foundation was started and still it is the owner of the, the Blender sources. So it right. protects it protects the intellectual property. Um, it, uh, it, it is the owner of the, the logo, for example. So you're free to right. copy the sources, make your mm -hmm. own copy of the software, but you're not allowed to call that Blender with the official Blender logo. Right. Makes sense. Um, and so Blender Foundation also protects developers. So if you, you give away what you write in, in terms of software to Blender Foundation and in turn the foundation protects you when, say, some big corporation comes knocking on our door saying, well, you copied our technique. Well, then you don't have to defend yourself as an individual, um, but the foundation can help you with that. Right. Now, that's a nice, uh, nice structure. And, and yeah. then the, the institutes. That's, the institute yeah. is for the, 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 the <clears throat> practical stuff. So it's the, right. the working business. So the Institute uh, pays the rent for the building we work in. It, it employs people. So the foundation can give a grant to, to specific developers to do a specific job. But when you want to have like a, a contract and have an employer, that's mm -hmm. Blender Institute. Right, right. And recently another entity was spawned uh, which is the Blender Animation Studio, which is now separate. Mm -hmm. So the Animation Studio runs Blender Cloud, right. which was created to give more continuity. It's a website where people can pay 10 euros per month, get some discount if you pay per half year or a year. Yeah. And then they get access to all kinds of training material behind the scenes of the production. Um, mm -hmm. And the training is also done by the people making the, these productions. So you really get professional professionals talking about what they do and because of that and because of that structure of having subscriptions all of a sudden the studio had a more steady income mm -hmm. which meant that people could stay on board and we didn't have to lay off and then rehire and then etc and then there is a foundation that um, received donations right and that was always possible mm -hmm. uh, but a few years ago, we really wanted to make that bigger and wanted to get the, um, make it normal for companies who make money with Blender, who also financially depend on Blender being available to them, um, to make it normal that they give to, to the Blender Foundation. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make money with Blender, that's all fine. If you, if you want to do it, um, like if you can use it for free, make money, keep the money, that's all fine. Mm -hmm. But if you want to contribute to the, the future of Blender, make sure that bugs keep getting fixed, etc. You can uh, get a, a development fund membership. 
Right. Yeah, I, th I think for companies it makes a lot of sense to do that because if you are in if you're using Blender professionally, if you're in part financially dependent then on Blender being able to provide what you need it to do, then it makes sense that you pay for it so that you also help support it uh, in the future and so that it's, it can exist also in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so you mentioned the Blender Animation Studio. So uh, are you involved in any way in that yourself? Or uh, Yeah. Um, like I am employed by the Blender Institute, so in that sense, yeah. uh, contract-wise, no, I'm, I'm no longer part of the studio. But before we moved to the current building, we were in uh, the center of Amsterdam, in yeah. a smaller I, building I, with a smaller I've, team. I've been there, been there once, that was a nice place. Yeah. 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 And then I was literally sitting across from the animator and from like 3D designers and right. just being part of the studio mm -hmm. and for me that was also part of the attraction of working there because you you work with the people who use what you make and right i like that so much more than working for a company with some like clients somewhere else and and all you get is bug reports uh now i can write a feature or fix a bug and then immediately i can committed to the git repository the artist can click on update from git mm -hmm. their machine pulls a new version of blender and builds it and then they can use it and you can see that sparkle in their eye that their life has become a lot easier yeah exactly and then hopefully not a lot of other users start reporting crucial bugs uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah that is a nice feeling yeah, uh, and and what so what is your role exactly at Blender? So you're a software developer, but how yep. how do you fit in the organization? Um, I I work. I'm the module owner. So Blender is split up in different modules. Uh, animation and rigging is a module that that I'm the owner of, um, and there is uh, modeling. There is uh, rendering there is the the core module um there is a sculpting module there is painting mm -hmm. module this so there's a lot of separate areas of blender that all have one or more people responsible for that area a bunch of other people also working in that area mm -hmm. um, so i basically oversee the the animation and rigging module um Right. Which is a lot of fun, and it's uh, it, it it was a little bit of um, uh, how do I say underbelicht. Underbelicht, yeah, that's a Dutch yeah. term. <laughs> it's really hard to translate. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure um, how to how but to call it, that. But it, yeah. let, it needed attention. some attention. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and me being me, I have like lots of interests. I'm. I'm not really a person who would focus on one thing and really become the, the best of the mm -hmm. best in that. Um, yeah. So yeah. at some point on and, and some others said, said like as a whole, because there's lots of people at Blender who are like that, who mm -hmm. have lots of different interests. And they said that they wanted to focus more, have people focus more on one thing instead right. of trying to do everything just you have to pick yeah. and choose. So I chose animation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that definitely fits with your background. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's also why I wanted to uh, to work at Blender in the mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah. So. Hey, hey, Simon. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the software design aspects of Blender because I think that's particularly interesting. Honestly, if I look at uh, let's say, I mean, uh, people develop lots of different kinds of software applications. I guess if you're developing a, a, a graphics tool like like Blender or even 3D Studio Max or Maya, I mean, those are some of the most complex tools out there. I mean, they directly interact with graphics hardware. Uh, as you said, there are lots and lots of different components that have to operate together. Uh, they often have some kind of scripting engines, lots of importing, exporting facilities, uh, render farm support, uh, you name it. So there's so many extremely complex aspects to being able to build a software like that and it, and and how to make sure it doesn't crash basically every five seconds. So can you say something about the overall software architecture of Blender? What What is the Blender way of approaching that problem? How do, how do you solve it? I think a lot of this goes back to um, Ton's original, original design, um, which you can find back in, uh, for example, the, the file format itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it is basically a dump of the memory of Blender. Right. And then some description of what that dump, like what that memory looks like. Mm-hmm. And then when loading it in, you can just load it back into memory. You know which version of Blender saved it because that's also stored in the file. So you can do some versioning and, and upgrading of, of, of the memory to mm-hmm. adhere to what is currently running in, in uh, the software. Yeah. And then it keeps working. So you can uh, still open a Blender 1.0 file in the in current Blender. Mm-hmm. May not have all the same possibilities, but sure. still. Um, and this is because it's like based on data blocks. So a mesh is a data block. Mm-hmm. An object is a data block. And it's very, all very data-driven. And mm-hmm. that is what you see a lot in Blender. So, for example, when you make um, a user interface, many add-on developers want to know, like, how do I create a slider? How do I create a checkbox? I want to have that here. Yeah. And your life becomes considerably easier when you realize that it's Blender is more data-driven than that. So instead mm-hmm. of saying, I want to input meters here, you want to create a property of a floating point type and add some metadata that says this is a distance. Mm-hmm. And then you just tell Blender, oh, just draw this property. And because right. it has all that metadata attached to it, it knows that it mm. should be a slider. And you can, in that metadata, you can also yeah. give a minimum, maximum, that kind of stuff. Mm. And it will happen automatically. Yeah, right, right. So, so Blender kind of decides what the interface is going to look like based on the data that you give it. That's, that's exactly. basically what you're exactly. saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this is like this last part that how you define these properties, how you define that metadata is something that isn't wasn't there in in the very first version. So uh, Blender has a DNA and an RNA system. Yeah, I, I, that was going to be my next question because <laughs> <laughs> my software doesn't have DNA, so I was really curious uh, what that actually meant. Yeah, um, so I. 
let me start by apologizing to uh, biologists <laughs> or anybody who, who knows a bit about genetics. I don't think um, they're watching this channel, so no worries. <laughs> Um, so that those data blocks that I talked about, that is the DNA of Blender. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's um, to go into a bit more technical details, it's written in C, and they're just C structs. Right. They're defined in a certain files in Blender that are then parsed by a thing that can just parse the source code, and that can write descriptions of that to a Blend file as well. Mm -hmm. So it actually parses the sources and, and stores the structure of those structs in the blend file. Mm -hmm. So that when you load it, you, it, it can be parsed. And you can say things like, if this struct doesn't have a field of that type, then we go and do something to, to set the defaults correctly or to compute the defaults mm -hmm. from some other property. Uh, for example, recently we added a, a three-dimensional scale to custom bone shapes. Mm -hmm. So it used to have one number for the scale, and now we want to have a vector so you can scale it in X, Y, Z directions independently. That has to be initialized from that original uh, one-dimensional scale. Uh, this happens right. in the versioning code. Mm -hmm. So that is what the, um, the DNA system takes care mm -hmm. of. So that actually also plays a really important role in being able to load older versions of Blender files then. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have like versioning underscore 300, which is the, the latest one for Blender 3.0, mm -hmm. all the way back to, I don't know, versioning 160 or something. Uh, I don't know exactly how far back it goes. Right. But, like the whole history is there. And, and how do you guarantee stability for that? Uh, is that all uh, being tested? And uh, how, how does that work? Uh, yes, it's being tested. No, not by automatic tests like we have little there there, there are automated tests uh, mostly unit tests yeah but you can see in blender's design and, and i feel that that's a bit of a, a shortcoming in the design that it wasn't really made with testing in mind so if you look at your last video about inversion of control uh, blender doesn't really use that all that much which means that a right. lot of things are not that easily testable so yeah. that is a challenge, and I think that's also why it's so good to have uh, have it as open source and to have daily builds available and to have people who actually download those daily builds and work with them uh, so that you can find these kind of bugs uh, faster than you would say with, with commercial software. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it also changes that because the, the source code is actually visible, that maybe as a uh, development team, you're also more driven to make sure that it's high quality, uh, also from the software design point of view. Whereas if you're simply shipping a proprietary piece of software, nobody cares what the code actually looks like. Uh, at least you will notice if it has many bugs, obviously, but as a customer, you, you yeah. won't really see that. It, it has two sides. Um, like on one side, you can... This is absolutely true. You have you have your personal pride. You want to make something nice because people can see it. Uh, on the other hand, there's also people who don't really care about it or who think um, differently about it than the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. And with uh, when you're a commercial company, everybody is working for the same boss. Everybody is getting the same paycheck. Um, you it, it's easier to enforce certain rules. Right. And 
with open source, what you want is to also make it pleasant for people to work on. And what is pleasant depends very much on personal preference. Mm -hmm. I find it very pleasant to work with cleanly structured, easy to work with code. Um, so I go out of my way to, to write comments in my code and to uh, change certain structures to, like after I'm done, I look back mm -hmm. at what I've done, etc. cetera. Um, and other people just want to make features and are happy when those features are in. And um, lots of people are happy about those features. So there's certainly some something to say about this approach. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you get high quality source code. No. No, I've, what, what I noticed in my own company is that it's also important that developers have a feeling of responsibility and not just uh, uh, f building some feature and then just assuming that the software testers are going to figure out all the bugs because, well, they built the feature, so they're basically done, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so with Blender, so you have a, an immense code, code base, I, I imagine, and you have many different contributors. Um, how do you manage though that and how do you how do you ensure some kind of quality process with all these different people that are involved people that are not uh, in the office or they're not part of blender so so how do you go about that uh the one thing that's really important is code review so um many of the contributions come in from people who only do one or two contributions mm -hmm. um so there is a code review system in place, so everybody can shoot us a patch and uh, get it reviewed. Um, then there's the module system that gives us some guidance as to, okay, wait, which part of the code is being touched by this patch? What's the, the topic of this patch? Mm -hmm. And then it can be tagged with that module so that people can pay, the, the right people can look into it. Um, yeah. uh, what I try to do with uh, the animation module is that... I include artists, so it's not just um, developers who are members of a module, but mm -hmm. it's also animators and riggers who are, who are members. Mm -hmm. So I will certainly also include them to get a feel for how useful a feature actually is. Mm -hmm. Like if it's a very technical thing, like um, I reduced the cyclomatic complexity of this function by 25 points and uh, it's still doing the same thing, yeah, then it's not that interesting for mm -hmm. artists, but when it's a new feature or a change in behavior, mm -hmm. uh, that's really important. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I guess for, let's say, bug fixes and, and smaller features or extensions, this, this is still doable. But I imagine if, if you develop a, a, a software package, you will also have more things that are you want to change on, on a higher level. Maybe you just want to let's say in in the case of animation so um, for example you could uh, initially create a keyframe based system for animation but suppose you want to tr uh, transform it to some kind of uh, physics based system that works purely with physics that means you have to change everything in the core basically of how the system works um, how, how would you how do you do that with so many contributors do you assign a team of people to kind of do the first version or, or how does it work well, like these kind of big changes, I don't see them happening. That's the thing. I, I wouldn't see uh, 
keyframe animation going out because it's one of the core things yeah. of Blender. That's maybe and not a, not a good example, uh, but no, yeah. but like like a lot of these things that are currently in Blender are there because lots of people use them, or maybe sometimes because one person used them and other people it didn't get in the way of other things, so it was accepted anyway. Um, so it's more about adding new stuff than taking out the old. Um, and yeah, that, that is a challenge. Um, for example, we, it's years already we've been looking at an asset system. Mm -hmm. You get all, all the questions like, what is an asset? And what, mm -hmm. everybody has different ideas about what is an asset. Sure, yeah. So th there, uh, there have been many discussions about what is asset management? What is, do we want an asset manager? Uh, lots of these attempts have just fallen short of where Ton said, yes, this is exactly what should be there. Mm -hmm. And I think that is still the, the place where it all ends up. Like mm -hmm. when it's a big thing like this, you have to have Ton's approval. Yeah, It's open source, it's community driven, but um, Ton has to has to be on board yeah. on the idea. Well, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you always need uh, one person or, or at least a very small group of people that are basically responsible for the vision of, uh, of, the, of, of the product and, uh, yeah. and what the direction is that you're going into. Yeah. yeah. We're trying to split that off into um, more into the modules. Mm -hmm. um, Two years ago, uh, well, year and a half ago, at the Blender conference, in his opening speech, Ton started with, uh, I'm going to stop. And like, yeah. there was a shock wave of going through like the hall. And mm -hmm. what he meant was, okay, I'm 60 now, uh, 65, 67, I might get a pension. Uh, and not so much that he was going to stop at that moment, but that he wants the organization to transform so that he can stop and he, yeah. he can step down or like focus on on a smaller subset of, mm -hmm. of all the tasks that he has right now. Uh, so that is why the, the modules are supposed to be more independent, stand more on their own feet and have this vision for themselves. So we have some ideas about where to take the animation system next. Mm -hmm. uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's uh, it's basically uh, something that uh, Tom experienced when he was at Pixar. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Blender now, you, can, you have control bones, you have all kinds of bones in a rig, and when you pull on a bone, something moves. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the character stays on character. Mm -hmm. And you, it's very technical. You have to do a lot of different tweaks. There's a lot of artistry in there to make a character come to life in sure. a way that is still looking like the same character from shot to shot. Mm -hmm. And what Tom saw at Pixar was that he could just toy around with one of their characters and drag any part of that body around and it would still look like that character. And you no longer feel that you're manipulating these bone shapes and and they have to f struggle with the software, but it's more like moving a character. Um, and 
that is like the kind of vision that we have mm. for future version of, of, of Blender. Almost like you're manipulating a clay figure. You don't really care about what's inside. You just wanted to take the pose that you, you need, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you look at the, the animation system at, at the moment, so what, what do you see as the main, let's call it these design challenges to, to basically get it to that level? Uh, well, for one, the, the, the current animation system is, uh, is quite old already. And it's quite complex in terms of the source code and the structures in there and the, the spaghetti that it ended up being. Mm-hmm. So maybe we would have to just indeed replace it with a new system um, that could be uh, still compatible with the old data. Because, mm-hmm. of course, the, the data itself is completely separate from whatever handles it, uh, which is kind of a good design. I think for this system to work, we need, it also takes a lot of man hours and still takes a lot of artistry. I don't think you can take that away from, from animation, no. except that it will have to be before the animators start. So all these poses have to be created, all the possibilities of the character and a, a definition of what makes this character this character has to mm-hmm. be in there somehow. Yeah, and, and do you have an idea of what those features are to, to define that? What, what are the parameters that you can change to make a character come alive? Uh, well, I think we may have to maybe go back to like what I was working for at my master study, where we had uh, we were working. Uh, I also did that with uh, with you, Ariane. I and remember. I vaguely remember. <laughs> <laughs> we were working on a system that could take motion capture data and take footstep positions, and then animate a character that would walk on those footstep positions. Yes. Yeah. So basically, it, it took parameters from an animator and then looked up example data based on those parameters and, and was able to combine these examples into something that would fit those parameters. And I think that will be a good approach for, for such an animation system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, it's very important to keep the animators in control. And that is something that is really hard to, to combine, to give them something that automatically does something what we think is right but still have them work with the system instead of fighting the system. Yeah, it's basically a classic uh, problem. And it's not only in animation, but that's in user interfaces in general. Like, uh, how, how do you create a system that is oriented towards the user and not oriented towards the system? Um, yeah. If, if you, you could make, a, let's say you have a database application, you could make a system that simply does create, read, update, and delete operations. But maybe that's not what the user wants to do at all directly. Maybe they want to do other things that combine those things that make a lot more sense to the user. And, yeah. and figuring that out is, uh, is really hard. Yeah, Yeah. The, uh, recently we had a good example of that. Um, there's, there's been a drive for years already to get more things in Blender node-based. So the shading system for the renderers is, is, uh, is already node-based. When you say node-based, what do you mean by that? Uh, so that you have little operations that you connect with so the input of one thing you connect to the uh, so the output of one thing you connect to the input of the next Um, so you create basically a graph of small operations that that create something 
right uh, contrary to mm -hmm. the current particle system of blender which just has panels of options mm -hmm. and then you have to scroll and find the, the those options where they were you have to open panels and figure out what goes where mm -hmm. um and that particle system is also something that is old and hard to understand and very optimized for things like execution speed which doesn't help in uh trying to get uh, trying to understand what's going on mm -hmm. right mm. um so it was deemed too old we put a big stripe through it like new <laughs> newly introduced bugs will get fixed older bugs will not mm -hmm. we're not going to look at it anymore we're going to replace it with a new system right and that should be node-based so mm -hmm. that you can uh have a clearer uh, relation between the generation of particles, the behavior of particles, forces that act on it, etc. So lots of work went into this. And when it was time, like uh, Jacques-Luc made an excellent prototype. And when it came to actually asking the animation studio, what do you need? Not so much the particles, but more, it was more used for um, object scattering, like leaves on the ground mm. little particles of grit stones rubble right. uh, mm -hmm. pile of bricks in the corner so it was much more static just placing things like the the grass mm -hmm. on, a, on a field mm -hmm. uh, right more about that so that's when the project just shifted its attention and shifted what was supposed to be the the minimal viable product mm -hmm. from particle dynamics to to uh, object scattering yeah that's really interesting how important the user involvement is in that in that place because in the end they're they're going to be the ones that interact with with your system and uh, it yeah. needs to make sense to them and yeah absolutely uh, and and one of the big things of blender is obviously that you have extensive uh, scripting built in uh, everywhere basically um, and Blender, so you said Blender was built in, is built in C, or yep. maybe even C++. Uh, uh, originally built in C, and right. we're moving more and more code to, uh, to C++. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and the scripting is all done in Python, right? Yes. How do you maintain that integration, and how do you make sure that it, it still keeps making sense? Because with scripting, I mean, you give a lot of freedom to your users, but it's also very risky because uh, they can break all kinds of things, and uh, it may lead to lots of support issues and, and other things uh, that maybe you didn't think about when you were designing the feature or when you added the scripting. <clears throat> if you put your mind to it, it's very easy to crash Blender with, uh, with scripting. You can generate millions of objects uh, that are way too big and, and clones of each other and not efficient. And mm -hmm. uh, that will just, if it doesn't bring your computer to its knees, it will certainly not, your GPU won't like it when all that data right. is uploaded to it. Mm -hmm. um, but still, it, it helps a lot. So if you if you think about what should we do in C, C++ and what should we do in Python, then as a rule of thumb, it's still do it in C or C++. Mm-hmm. And Python was really intended to build menus, build the user interface, glue things together, um, and not so much as uh, to provide core functionality of the program. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Also in terms of performance of uh, C++ is much uh, higher, yeah. in, of course, than, than Python. Yeah, the idea of Tom was also that 
like the user should be able to do what Python can do and vice versa. But like what the user does should in, in theory all be in, um, in C or mm -hmm. C++. Sipin, you mentioned uh, DNA, but you also mentioned RNA. Can you tell a little bit more about that? How does that work? Yeah, so DNA is really at the core of Blender, which is why it's called that way. And RNA is uh, something that came later and was given uh, a name that also relates to genetics, but it's like bi biologically, the relation is different than here. Mm -hmm. um, basically, it's the interface that the animation system uses and that also Python uses to access the DNA. Mm -hmm. So RNA... So DNA could say, uh, this is a float property. RNA could say, then says, okay, this is a float property in RNA with this minimum, that maximum. Um, it is a distance uh, or maybe it's an angle and then the user interface will represent it differently. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it is the, um, the interface between the core mm -hmm. data structure and how the animation system and mm -hmm. Python interacts with it. So is it so it contains uh, constraints like uh, minimum and maximum length and the type of thing and uh, yes mm -hmm. and things yeah. like uh, maybe yeah. some property gets a setter function getter function mm -hmm. uh, it can register uh, update handlers that are mm -hmm. called whenever a property changes okay um, yeah and this also uh, this layer this RNA layer also plays a role in um, the override system. Mm -hmm. So with Blender, you can open a file, you have in memory what that file contains and what you can work with, but also you can link in data blocks from other Blend files. So you can load in the character from the character file into an animation file and link it in. Mm -hmm. That means that when you save that Blend file, it doesn't also contain a copy of the character. But as a design and, and user uh, rule, you cannot edit anything that is not part of the current Blend file. Mm -hmm. So when you want to pose a character that you linked in from a different blend file, well, you, you can't mm -hmm. because it's a different blend file. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is where the override system comes into play. So you can say, I want to create an override for this armature and then pose it differently. Mm -hmm. The animation data gets stored in the local blend file. You can still manipulate that object, but the real copy actually exists in a different blend file. And this is also handled by the RNA system. Right. I think it's it's one of the most challenging things in such an application on how to properly deal with data and uh, and also how to make sure that people are not accidentally throwing away things they shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> That's a sensitive uh, subject. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine I imagine it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blender has a, a reference counting system. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have some material that is applied to a mesh. Right. That means that the material gets uh, a user count of one. Mm -hmm. If you apply it to a second mesh, it gets a user count of two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you remove it from those meshes, it gets a user count of zero, but it still stays around in memory. It's mm -hmm. not like it's actively garbage collected at that time. Okay. But when you save the file, it won't be saved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So next time that you load it, it will be gone. Yeah. Is there any warning to the user that that is happening? Used to be not, but more and more we get to the point that uh, we do warn users about this. Mm -hmm. um, it also used to be a very uh, simple system, so it would do just one check of these users and only not save the ones with a zero user count. 
Um, mm -hmm. But because those are no longer there, that could mean that other data blocks all of a sudden don't have a user anymore. And right. those would still be around because at the time of saving, their user count was still bigger than one. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, bigger than zero. <laughs> um, so this is all being streamlined to either save everything or not save it at all mm -hmm. and yeah. repeatedly go over yeah. these things to, to clean yeah. it up properly. And at the same time, there is more warnings about things that get lost or might get lost mm -hmm. when you would save the file. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of improvement yeah. there already. And and I guess there's also some interaction with an with an undo system and a redo system. Yes, this was actually one of the reasons why it's a good idea to work with uh, these linked libraries, as we call them. Mm -hmm. um, because the set of data that you can work with is reduced heavily when you put all your, your heavy models and, and scenes and sets and everything in different blend files. And just locally have the data that you want to work with because that makes undo save load all of that mm -hmm. much faster yeah 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 that makes a lot of sense so you basically have you consider the let's say the, the basic 3d models and animations are kind of like the uh the core data that you're going to be working with when you create a scene but then the scene itself is actually referencing referencing that data and then you're not actually actually changing the data but you're just using it yeah, exactly. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're also looking at different ways of um, doing baking to Alembic or USD files. So that, uh, for example, the animator has done their work um, on a rig that is like hundreds or sometimes thousands of bones and drivers, mm -hmm. which are little snippets of Python code that compute new things. It's, it can get quite heavy to compute mm -hmm. how to go from one frame to the next. Um, so we're also experimenting with storing the result of that in, uh, in some file. Right. And then when the lighting artist can come in to, to load it in, it, they don't have to change the animation. So mm -hmm. they could just load the, the result of the, the evaluation instead of having to go, well, their computer, to go through all of that again. Mm -hmm. Then, you, of course, you get the challenge that they do need to change the animation because once there is proper lighting, you can see that it casts a shadow in a weird way on the back wall. So you have to change the hand a tiny little mm -hmm. bit. And these kind of corrections you still want to do on top of that system that was meant to not allow any changes. Mm -hmm. so that's another idea that we have for uh, the future yeah. animation <laughs> system to make this possible. Yeah, it's always lots of future ideas, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What would you say has been the the main software design challenge for Blender in the last years? I think it is trying to keep things more independent. If if you look at a graph of the different uh, modules, because the, the source code is not all in one file, of course, it's separated over sure. multiple files, uh, separated over multiple directories. Um, every directory becomes a library, and that is in the end linked together. Mm -hmm. If you look at the dependency graph just of these libraries that is a huge I entangled mess mm -hmm. yeah so it becomes really hard to figure out when you change something what will be the result of that change mm -hmm. and i think that is the biggest uh challenge that we have at the moment to to get things more predictable and simpler to work with mm -hmm. to have clearer interfaces between one part of blender and the other instead of just everybody calling everybody's functions. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that this is really hard to solve because, especially if you just basically split out uh, um, the the roles a bit more, that people are responsible for uh, specific sub things. They may not uh, they may not be interested in uh, all the other parts and how they work, or it may not be uh, clearly on their radar. So when you split the roles in that way, it might actually become harder to to yep. maintain a, a level of, uh, of 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 stability in the system. Yeah, and you you can see that in the time that it takes to make a new feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ton Ton sometimes jokingly says like, "Oh, when I was working on Blender, I could." make a new render engine in a weekend <laughs> and yeah uh, that's no longer possible no i i guess it's the bane of every bigger uh software product that at some moment you, you just can't move as fast anymore um yeah. yeah and also like it's still the same source code there is still uh sometimes i have i go diving for a bug like i go spitting in the git history to to figure out where it came from mm-hmm. and sometimes i end up at 18 years ago <laughs> initial commit wow and yeah <laughs> yeah that's it pretty, ha- still happens sometimes that's pretty incredible yeah like a, a company i used to work for um chess now called cmedis they they do work for clients although they use a lot of the similar uh software for for every one of their clients because they're like somewhat related every project is completely free in what they what they use in terms of software stack Mm -hmm. so that means that you could say well now we've used version three four and five of this software we don't really like where it's going let's just try something completely different Mm -hmm. you start from scratch you don't have all the bagage of all the previous projects and that's not something you can do when when you're Blender. No, (laughs) no. As a startup, it's nice to be able to kind of uh, start with a fresh, with the newest technology, but soon you'll also be in a position where you just have to deal with legacy. And that's, that's just part of life, unfortunately. Maybe to, to, to close off a few more questions. So, um, one thing that I was wondering about, so there's been a lot of developments in computer graphics, obviously, and over the last decades. Uh, now we see uh, uh, VR, a augmented reality is getting really popular. We also see that, on the other hand, mobile devices become used more and more for uh, professional applications as well. It's not just to check Facebook, but there are also video editing uh, programs on, uh, on, your, on your phone, for example. What do you think will happen in the space of... 3D modeling tools like Blender within that regard? Mm. Uh, well, there is already a, uh, quite a few things going on in terms of virtual reality support. So Blender already supports virtual reality mm-hmm. in the sense that you can start it in Steam VR, for example, and then walk around in your own set. Mm-hmm. You just see the, the 3D viewport, but then in VR. And I think there are a few patches now in um, in the review for adding controller support, mm-hmm. so that you can actually pick up stuff and and interact with uh, with the scene. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely yeah. something that is that is continuing. Um, also, I know that there are studios who combine motion capture data with uh, and virtual reality with Blender. Mm-hmm. So they use a camera rig that is tracked in motion capture. So it's actually sitting on top of somebody's uh, shoulder mm-hmm. and somebody is looking through 
some viewfinder. Yeah. Right. But what they see is what the camera in Blender sees. Mm-hmm. And so you you get this feel of a handheld camera that is operated by a person standing in the scene, which is completely different than somebody using their mouse to move a camera around. Right. Yeah. Um, similar similar example to with a different technique to get the same result was with um, Cosmos Laundromat 2015 that was released. The director took a handheld camera just went outside to the street mm-hmm. and started filming the, the street. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was street was completely irrelevant, but it had a ni- nice texture that could be easily tracked by Blender. So it was used to create these camera tracks that were then imported into the film uh, to mm-hmm. get this handheld uh, feel to the to the camera motion. Yeah, I think that's, that's really nice. There's so many interesting developments going on in that space. Like uh, uh, also, what I like very much is the you have drones where you basically also have a, a kind of a VR set, but then you actually see the camera that's on the drone, like a first-person view drone. I have that; and, it's uh, awesome. Yeah, definitely. We we actually used that uh, for the introduction of the last year's Blender conference. Oh, uh, right. There's a shot from high up over Amsterdam, looking mm-hmm. down going down into uh, the office, uh, into uh, Ton's office. Mm-hmm. And this was done with a drone. It's all one shot. And Francesco had these VR goggles on. Uh, and he, with that, he controlled the camera. Right. I tried to control the camera while also flying the drone. That was not possible. Mm-hmm. And all he had to do was just look where he wanted to, to the camera to point and that yeah. makes, of course, a yeah. whole different uh, different image. Yeah. I should get a drone for my channel, <laughs> you know, would be nice. <laughs> so should. Now yeah. we're going to refactor this code and then we're flying in from outside through the office and then I end yeah, up typing on my keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, maybe to, to close off, Seaburn, um, do you have any tips for our viewers, listener on, uh, on, on software development and basically how to become better at it? Hmm, I think most important to get better at at writing software is uh, talk with people. Talk with friends, with uh, fellow nerds online, for real, wherever, and Mm -hmm. discuss, like, why do you think your code is good? Mm -hmm. What what makes you proud of of what you made in terms of the structure or how you approach a certain problem? make a list of the assumptions that your code makes. Like mm-hmm. Try to really line by line figure out, oh, wait, but because I'm de- dividing by this, that means it shouldn't be zero. Or because I'm dereferencing this pointer, mm-hmm. that means it shouldn't be null. Mm-hmm. But that actually means that in like 500 steps earlier, some other function was called to actually fill that pointer. Mm-hmm. And try to get, just write it down in comments. Mm-hmm. Like, what does this function assume about the state of the world? Mm. I think those two things are are really important yeah. because I noticed that a lot of bugs occur when somebody has a certain assumption, but it wasn't really clear mm-hmm. in the code itself. So then somebody else comes along, doesn't un- see that that assumption is there, breaks the assumption, and things crash. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's really hard to uh, not think further than the happy flow. 
and basically assume that yeah. your users are going to try to break everything and are not going to do the, the standard things that you expect them to do. And you just want your software to, to be able to deal with that in some way. Yeah. yeah. I, I think of myself as a developer who has this on his retina and thinks about the users and what they can do, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but still, when I was happy with my code, I thought it was done well. I gave mm -hmm. it to a tester. This was back at a different company where we had a dedicated um, yeah, quality assurance team. Mm -hmm. I gave it to the tester. He does two clicks and it breaks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it also shows that you cannot test your own code. Uh, yeah. You, as a developer, you're working on making things, on creating things, on making it work. Mm -hmm. And as a tester, your your aim is to break things. Yeah. And it's such a different mindset that it's really hard to toggle between the two. Absolutely. Hey, Sibrand, thank you very much for your time. It was really lovely to talk to you about this. And uh, I'm really curious to see what is uh, happening with Blender in the coming years. Uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, listening and joining in. And uh, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And uh, hope to see you soon in uh, one of the next videos.